Welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Hune. Our mission is to help you gain your freedom from the exhausting, never-ending corporate rat race. Because time is our most valuable asset. And life's just too short to do work we hate. Thanks for slowing down. All right, welcome to the Affordable Freedom Podcast, everyone. Um, today, my guest is Jason Sue. Now, Jason is the founder and chief investment officer of Raliant Global Advisors, which is his second successful startup in the investment management industry. Raliant manages over $17 billion in assets for both large institutions and high net worth individuals. And if his past success is any indicator, that number is going to keep climbing because his first startup now has around $130 billion in managed investments, last I checked. But as successful as Jason has been in the investment in the investment world, what I admire most about him is that he doesn't prioritize money. His priority is creating value for others. And money is simply the reward for doing that. You create value, you get rewarded with money. And that's what affordable freedom is all about. Because when we prioritize money, the money pulls us away from our value. And life becomes a never-ending competition that we really can never win. But when we prioritize freedom, we have the space to create more value for others. And when we get paid for that value, life starts to become pretty affordable. As if he wasn't busy enough running a financial institution, Jason's also a finance professor in UCLA's Anderson School of Management. So uh, Jason, really grateful to have you on the show here today. Thank you and welcome. How's it going? Hey, Brian, thank you for having me on. Of course, it's my pleasure. Glad to have you. So, uh, Jason, so I've gotten to know you uh, pretty well, I would say, um, as a as a leader in the finance industry. And, you know, we've had some pretty broad ranging conversations. But I thought I'd start today by asking a question that I'm personally curious about and have never had the opportunity to to ask you. I I shouldn't say I didn't have the opportunity to ask you. I just never did. But why did you get into finance in the first place? Well, uh, it was purely by accident. Uh, You know, I was a a trained academic, really kind of in economics and finance. And when we talk about finance in academia, it is nothing like what sort of people think about when it comes to finance and investing. It's much more of understanding, well, how does the capital market work? Does it really lead to better efficiency, better social welfare for society, so on and so forth? So kind of fairly high-level stuff that has very little to do with you know investing for, for profits and, and maximizing returns. Uh, so I got into the investment business, uh, as I mentioned, purely by accident because uh, you know I was at UCOA at the time and uh, a uh, visiting professor uh, in the name of Rob Arnott, uh, and obviously a, a well-known industry titan um, 20 years ago already. Uh, I think he's only gotten more famous since then. Uh, you know, he came to UCLA to volunteer to teach, and I was paired up to teach a class uh, with him. And, and that began the story of, you know, two guys with a Bloomberg in a garage starting a startup in California, and it became a runaway success. Uh, again, you know, it wasn't what I was planning to do. It was a fun little consulting project, uh, just with the right person at the right time, and uh, and a lot of good luck. And the rest is history. So I'm curious. You talked about the difference uh, between finance in academia and in for-profit investing. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that and then maybe about how your background in academia, how some of that maybe has transferred over to the investment world and then vice versa, how this stuff in the investment world transfers over in your current work in academia? So in academia, uh, you know, it's not about uh, researching a strategy that'll make a lot of money. That's not what uh, research academics care about. We, we really care about sort of more basic foundational questions, which is, okay, um, if someone says this strategy works, like value investing works, well, why, right? Market's pretty efficient. People are pretty smart. They compete. If something works, everyone will do it. It goes away. So what does that teach us about investor psychology, about human behaviors that cause us to persistently uh, be unwilling to invest in something that's value-oriented and favor something that's sort of sexy and growth-oriented. So, you know, from there, we're trying to learn about uh, human psychology and how it impacts us as investors. And from there, understanding, well, how does that human psychology then impact our savings behavior, right? Uh, our investing behavior, which might lead to, you know, understanding why Americans generally tend to undersave or underinvest, uh, and what can we do to change that? You know, what can we do to help investors save more, uh, maybe asset allocate more successfully so they can retire better? So these are really the questions that academics are grappling with. Right? It's all about uh, you know, what can we learn from markets, from data that will perhaps help, help us design, um, advise government to put into place better policies to assure better retirements for the broader public or, or change how they regulate markets so that it's more fair, it's more conducive to long-term wealth accumulation. So these are sort of things academics care about. Uh, they don't translate directly into building a, a hedge fund or, or an asset management business um, where there's a lot of crossover. I think the best analogy is, you know, today people hire a lot of, uh, you know, nuclear physicists, quantum physicists, uh, theoretical uh, mathematics professors to go and work at, uh, you know, Renaissance, right? One of the most successful high-frequency trading hedge funds. Uh, and it's not because quantum physics translates into, uh, you know, figuring out stock market returns. It's that the ability to think critically and deeply, uh, the ability to code up ideas and uh, test them against data, the understanding of statistics, uh, understanding of statistics as it applies to large data sets, small data sets, you know, all those sort of foundational trainings that a a social scientist or a mathematician uh, would have, uh, they, those translate really well into then using those tools to you know, understand how to predict returns uh, and predict risk. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit. From a tactical standpoint, I know I mentioned in the opening that um, this is the second business that you've built. You successfully built another business previously. Uh, but from a tactical standpoint, and we'll get into more of the philosophical side in a little bit, but can you describe what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned out of starting a business for the first time? If you can think back to the original business that you started. So it's uh, it's 20 years ago now. So a lot of things are are foggy in my mind. I'm, I'm much older now than I was before. <laughs> so a lot of things don't quite work as well. Uh, but I would say the biggest takeaway is that um, uh, you need a lot of good luck. I know some people say it because they want to be humble. Uh, some people uh, you know, say it because that's sort of like a good answer. 
Uh, I say it because I stand in awe of how lucky I have been, and I also stand in fear of the wrong lessons people often take uh, when they run into successful startup uh, entrepreneurs. So, so I want to emphasize the luck part. Um, you know, there are obviously other useful lessons I love to share, but I want to emphasize the luck part because I, I want to encourage any and everyone out there who's thinking about uh, sort of. You know, starting a business to recognize how big of a component luck uh, will play, uh, and therefore, right, that's one thing that's outside of your control, right? And so, you really just got to respect that, right? You got to respect that. A lot of stories you've heard, a lot of success stories, um, those are not as replicable and repeatable as you imagine. Again, not because those entrepreneurs weren't smart, super capable, very hardworking, but luck always plays an element. So don't don't underestimate that because you can be the smartest guy, the hardest working guy, uh, and success is still never guaranteed. So I just want everyone to be uh, to be cognizant. And just like in investing, right? You always want to respect that there's so much that's outside of your control, especially in the short run. And you just gotta have the fortitude. Uh, and also the peace to, to accept that uh, when you start a business. Right? If you can't accept that luck plays a meaningful part in that journey, uh, if you always feel like it's man against nature and that just through sheer grittiness and will, you will win, you know, that, that, that might not work out so well, right? You just got to, uh, especially in this business, be at peace with how much sort of short-term randomness will play into uh, the journey and be able to accept that. Yeah, that's a great perspective and something that I'm starting to appreciate more, um, I guess, as I get older and wiser, you know. Yeah. I was going to say, there's really two sides to that lesson, right? One part is, you know, recognizing luck plays a big part. Um, it also allows you to be more forgiving with yourself and more forgiving with your team that, you know, you, you don't want to over uh, interpret any lack of short-term success to, oh, I have a business model. I'm not working hard enough. I'm not good enough. Uh, and then you pivot yeah. too quickly. You give up too quickly. Uh, I think part of that just be a bit more patient, a bit more forgiving. Like you could be doing all the right things, putting in the right effort, putting in the hours and having a right attitude. But, you know, short-term results not guaranteed. You know, that's not guaranteed in your investment portfolio, not guaranteed in your startup uh, effort. Uh, but just be a piece. If you keep doing the right things, uh, it'll probably all work out well. Yeah, I'm starting to appreciate that a lot more. I think, um, you know, as I was growing up in my career, and this is, I think, kind of a Western culture thing, specifically here in, in the United States, where we're such a country of individualism, right? And a lot of times, I had this conversation recently with a guest where she talked about with individualism, you know, uh, being one of our, our core values, uh, sometimes we won't ask for help. And if we get help, we won't acknowledge that we got it. And it could be the same with luck, right? Sometimes we won't acknowledge when we got lucky because darn it, we worked hard. And that was all the results of our, of our hard work. But um, it's so important for setting expectations properly, like you said. And then I found it to be really important as well just from a mindset, because if I say to myself how lucky I've been, I'm so much, I have so much more gratitude. And having that gratitude and that optimistic mindset 
helps me to move forward as an entrepreneur when, to your point, a lot of times the tangible results aren't necessarily going to be there. But if, if you're constantly moving forward because you're grateful for the process and the things you've been learning along the way, that goes, I think that goes a long way for a, for a new entrepreneur. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Brian. Um, you know, this reminds me of, of, I think it was, you know, Albert Einstein. And I study physics at Caltech. So, you know, I, I tend to think very, very, very highly of him. I think he, he mentioned that one of the most important things for you know, us as, as human beings to, to basically take a stance on is whether we believe in a friendly universe. And I think, you know, if I can sort of extrapolate that into what I think it means, it's, if you believe in a friendly universe, right, um, then you really can just believe, look, if you put in the hard work, if you got the right attitude, if you mean well uh, for other people, you, 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 you're working to create value, um, that the world is better because of you, um, then the friendly universe will just make sure everything else happens and fall into place if you just keep doing the right thing, fighting the good fight. And I believe in a friendly universe, uh, and and so you know I'm I think as a result of that I, I'm more able and willing to shake off of sort of any short-term setback and believe that hey you know if good luck is what's necessary for something to work, I'll I'll have some good luck when the time is right and when I'm the right person for it. And there's something to say for attracting good luck as well. And I think you you and I had a conversation recently where we talked about you know up. Why not be optimistic, right? I mean, the worst case scenario, you're going to be happier than everyone else. I, I think if you, you know, if you have that optimistic mindset, that comes across in your interactions with other people. They're going to be attracted to that. And I think that's becoming even more so the case in the digital age with social media. We're becoming hyper-connected. So if you build that social capital and you focus on just uh, the work that you're doing and cre again, like you say, creating value for other people, good things tend to happen. That's right. That's, that's absolutely what I believe in. It's uh, it's completely on faith, right? This is not very scientific, but I figure if Einstein's willing to believe in that, it probably can't be too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I've found recently as well uh, that's helped is looking back a little bit and, and you had sort of touched on, um, you know, I, I think you mentioned kind of like having some grace, allowing yourself some grace a little bit. But the reason I bring that up is because as a new entrepreneur, it can be so tempting to look out in front of you at what you're trying to accomplish and always see this big uh, gulf, you know, between where you are and where you want to get to. And so I've been very intentional about looking back each day and, um, you know, just talking about like my three wins for the day, even if it's something like I had a nice conversation with a new friend, you know, but little things like that to try, try to keep that optimistic mindset. Have you done things like that as well? What I've observed uh, as sort of the biggest, I would say the, the biggest return on entrepreneurial effort is precisely what you just mentioned, um, you know, being grateful, you know, reflecting back on, wow, you know, that that was a, that was a great day because of these small things. Uh, you know, just sort of being grateful to to small wins, to a good conversation, to a good friend one along the way. Uh, and I 
I think when I first started my career, I was very much a, you know, man versus nature, right? Like I can overcome any and everything. I would just, you know, grind to it. I will will it. And again, you know, those are absolutely useful attributes, right? The willpower to just sort of, you know, fight on every day and claw every inch. But ultimately, I think um, happiness doesn't come from, you know, grinding to an outcome. Happiness comes from sort of looking back and really thinking, wow, you know, a lot of people stepped up and helped me when they didn't have to. A lot of things fell into place. I don't know why. I hope it's because the universe thought I was a good enough guy that I I, I could use a bit of good luck, a little bit of help at the right point in time. I think it was really looking back and being able to be thankful for all the events that didn't have to happen, right? Uh, all the help, all the friendship that I wasn't entitled to. Uh, and then I think it's developing that uh, ability to appreciate, to be grateful. That's probably been the biggest dividend, I would, I would say, at least in the second startup. And I think you know, coming off the high of first startup, I was probably a bit uh, more hubris than I need to be um, and probably thought I deserved more than I actually deserved. And the second startup, I think, um, adjusted that. And then that's been the biggest payoff, the biggest return uh, in this second entrepreneur effort. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more, because you you had a very successful first startup and you could have just sat back and said, you know what? I did it. Um, it was a goal of mine to start a successful business. I did it. You've got that nice, comfortable job at UCLA. You could have sat back and did your research. But you said, let's let's give it another go. Let's do it again. So I'm curious as to like what drove that uh, within you to want to start a new business. And then also maybe share a little bit more detail on some of the reflections on the first business and how that translated into your philosophy, your, your philosophy here with the second business. So like you say, you know, I, I got very lucky with the, uh, the first startup in research affiliates. And uh, it became really, really comfortable. And then this, you know, just goes to prove that once you build a good platform, um, you know, the mode is very high and then you don't actually have to be, you know, working super hard and super innovative and still you can bring in a lot of business and then generate a lot of cash flow. So, you know, I'll sort of get to the part of, you know, the value of building a platform. But I would say... um, I was really comfortable on a phenomenal platform surrounded by really good people. And it was very comfortable, right? And very balanced. Uh, there's absolutely a part of me um, that says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm too young to sort of just be coasting. And I really miss the, the original excitement of starting something. Uh, but there's a second part, sort of, I would say, a darker element to it, which is, you know, I want to prove that I can do this again. And it wasn't just I can prove I can do it again because, you know, my first startup, I was partnered up with a phenomenal uh, entrepreneur, a phenomenal visionary in uh, Rob Arnott. And then I want to see, hey, you know, can I do it again uh, on my own? Uh, And and so I would say, you know, as I was mentioning before, uh, there's hubris in that, right? There's sort of a, a sort of a darker edge in wanting to prove that. Uh, and so, you know, that definitely went into part of the thinking in uh, starting, uh, you know, Rayleigh and Global Advisors after uh, research affiliates. Uh, and I would say as I kind of reflect back, 
in the second startup, I think I just gained so much more appreciation for uh, the partnership I had with Rob Arnott, the partnership I had with you know, all the people that were attracted to research affiliates um, because of sort of the iconic industry status of, of Rob and of the firm we built. And, uh, you know, I think um, now I just have so much more admiration and appreciation for what was there to help me with the first startup. And again, you know, how much of that was other people, you know, and I was simply part of a team and, and you know, sure, you know, a, a useful part but certainly nowhere as sort of critical as uh, I at some point in my past life would want to believe uh, me to be. <laughs> it's a good reflection to be able to sort of look back and instead of, you know, where I started the journey, you know, wanting to prove myself uh, to end at a place uh -huh. where I just have a deep appreciation for all the people that helped made it happen and a deep appreciation for, you know, how much it's really other people and I was just there supporting them rather than it was me and you know other people were there to support me yes yeah I think that's an important way to look at it and I like I like how you mentioned that when you got done with your first business you felt like you were kind of too young to be coasting um, and you had that sense where you wanted to kind of prove that you could do it again it's so key to understand this aspect of human nature I, I think like we've been conditioned to believe that you know, work is not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a way that we trade our time for money and we'd rather not trade our time, but we have to. And, and then we get conditioned into this mindset that we just do this job we don't like until we're 60 and then we retire. And then what people find is they retire and they have no meaning and purpose. They're not doing anything anymore. And then their retirement is not enjoyable and their life ends up not lasting as long as they would like because they don't have anything that's driving them. And so yeah, I think we just need to keep that in mind that, you know, while we may not stay in the job that we're in all the time, we're always going to want to be working towards something, or at least we should want to be working towards something. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this question probably is more important now than ever. And that, you know, what is the meaning of work? Brian, you're right that for a very, very long time, the meaning of work was you have to work to stay alive, right? You need to work to exchange that for money, which can be exchanged for consumption. You know, so you get roof top of your head. You know, you get you get to eat. Uh, you get to keep warm. Uh, but you know, we got into a stage, right? At least broadly in the developed countries, where um, you know a lot of work is probably automated, and uh, you know, frankly, a lot of work is done by machines, and then we're probably getting closer and closer to where a machine does everything. And so what then is the meaning of work, right? The human race isn't dependent on human work to, to, to maintain um, existence. So then the work in of itself has to bring some joy, right? It has to have some meaning, right? It has to drive the growth in the human being uh, himself, right? It has to be good for the soul, right? And, and so... Increasingly, you know, I think about work that way. I think about work for other people that way. I, where I end up at is work is most meaningful if it's work that helps us understand why we're here, right? Understand who we are and become the best version of, of us. Yeah, that that goes in perfectly with the next question that I was going to ask you because I was going to ask you, 
what advice you would have for somebody that wants to have a nice balance between making a lot of money and living a really happy life. And I think you kind of touched on it there a little bit is, is, you know, having that sort of purpose in the work that you're doing. So when would you say in your career that you really like found that purpose and you knew what, what was sort of going to be your North star going forward? I think it was probably toward the latter part of my time at research affiliate. I was super, super lucky that, uh, I hired a executive coaching team uh, called Conscious Leadership, uh, led by two gentlemen, uh, Jim Ware and Jim Dethmer. Um, they they both have gone on to to start two separate and and equally amazingly successful uh, sort of leadership consulting groups. Um, but you know what they really taught me at the time was about the value of uh, leadership and the value of a leader that's able to give people purpose. And, and so that was when I started to really rethink uh, what it means to run the company, to lead, right? Because I think traditional business school leadership and management teaching is about carrots and sticks, right? You, you want people to do A, and so you give them carrots if they do A, give them a stick if they do B. And that seems to be tried and true. And at least, I guess, that's tried and true if you're running a, a factory or you're trying to get people to build a pyramid. Um, but I think mm-hmm. increasingly, as we transition into a society where there's great abundance, right? Um, people, a lot of the work we do is because this work results in a beautiful product that you know, makes other people's life happier, right? It's not, you know, we're, 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 we're no longer making things that are purely about human life subsistence. And so it, it then has to come to, you know, how, how are you connecting with other people's human experience? And, uh, and so that's true in terms of what you make. It's true in terms of uh, you managing people uh, who are producing these things. Um, and so it's, it's then a completely different view on management, Right? It's not carrots and sticks. Um, it's about you know, aligning people's genius uh, and aligning their efforts along the axis of purpose. And it's about building a team where we're no longer giving a stick when we see shortcomings. It's about building a team where when the team's working well together, um, the shortcomings don't matter, right? Because it's a team. You cover each other's shortcoming and you can all emphasize and magnify each other's strength and you're rolling in the direction of purpose. Yeah, it's kind of like it's it's no longer about a, a worker just being a replaceable cog in a machine. It's about a worker being an individual and, and somebody who has values and characteristics and what does that bring to the table as part of the team? What role can they play on the team, right? Absolutely. Uh, and um, again, you know, we're not saying that, uh, you know, you can magically, you know, create sort of skills and, and competence. Uh, so fit is still important, right? You got to understand what are you trying to accomplish? What do you need on the team? And so it's still about sourcing the right skill. But more importantly, it's not just about skill. It's about the fit onto the team. And what you'll realize when you're very intentional and there's a great sense of um purpose that you're aligning to, it just gets a lot easier to build a team and to kind of really 
uh, lead the team, right? There's not a lot of carrot and stick management that's required, right? Because people sort of self-manage when they're aligned by purpose. Hmm. It's definitely, I, I've found purpose to be the, the biggest driver for me personally. Um, you know, and this isn't to say that I wasn't somebody who was once motivated by money. I certainly was. You know, when I first got done with college, I wanted to go out into the corporate world. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted people to think I was successful. Um, but ever since I found that that deeper meaning, that sense of purpose, um, the motivation is just off the charts. So highly recommend it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I think all of us uh, do start off from where you start off, right? Because that's what we were taught, right? It's, it's sort of almost the kind of the unspoken, or perhaps sometimes it is the, 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 the spoken uh, rule for how our economy works. It's like everyone should want to be wealthy and it's that North Star that get us to all work hard and be productive. Uh, and then the kind of capitalistic competitive economy will take care of it. And I think that's by and large been true but I think you can go a step beyond that, right? You know, once you start to believe in a friendly universe, you start to believe, hey, and the best way to 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 create, you know, wealth is if I trust that I do, you know, things I'm really good at, uh, and uh, it leads to value for others. So there's a purpose in me being of value to others. Um, then everything else will take care of itself. And again, that's almost you know, like we trust the the competitive free market to translate profit maximization into the greater good, I think it's probably, you know, just as easy, perhaps even easier that if you're just intentional about being value to others, that the wealth will come as well. Uh, and so once you understand that, then everything sort of lines up, right? It's just be who you are, um, yeah. you know, be a very high value to other people. Um, then you'll create value for others, the wealth will come, and everything else sort of flows through. Yeah. And it's becoming so much easier, um, you know, in the digital age with, with social media. I've said this before about how um, if you build enough social capital, then you can get rewarded with financial capital. And when we're on social media, you and I met on, on LinkedIn, and we connected on a human level. We've gotten to know one another. And... You know, there could be some opportunities, financial opportunities for the two of us based on that relationship. But I just think the more you put the human before the transaction and the more you kind of, you know, serve your purpose out there in your community, it, it's going to come back. And so I think it's a, a good opportunity right now, especially for folks who have historically thought of like entrepreneurship as being this big risk. Like it's not as much of a risk right now. If you're speaking to an individual that you're trying to serve, you have a problem that they need help solving. Um, you know, get your message out there. Try to find your people. And and many people are finding they can have multiple income streams online, and that can replace uh, income from a corporate job. But, anyways, I digress. Uh, before we jump off, Jason, I do want to. Uh, take this opportunity to just get a little bit of insight from you on investing. You know, that's something that I talk with my clients, obviously a lot about being a financial planner. Um, I talk to my newsletter subscribers a lot about investing and want to start talking about it more here on the podcast, because if you're going to create financial freedom, if you're going to build wealth, you're either going to you know own your own business 
or you're going to own a piece of somebody else's business. And the easiest way to do that is by investing in the stock market. So, Jason, being that you're an expert in this area, I was wondering if you could just highlight like some of the common mistakes that everyday investors make um, and maybe not even just everyday investors, no matter how seasoned an investor are, sometimes they can make these mistakes simply because we're human. I know this is something you and I have talked about a little bit. So I was wondering if you can share some of these insights with the listeners. Yeah. So I would say the two biggest mistakes. I'll start with the easy one. And I've spoken about that at the beginning of, of, of our podcast, uh, hubris. Uh, so there is a, a behavioral bias um, that's called the self-attribution bias. Um, basically, uh, a lot of investors, um, they over-assume skill. Right? So you know, maybe it's a raging bull market. They speculated on Tesla. They bought NVIDIA. Uh, and they made a lot of money, and all of a sudden they feel like you know they're better than Warren Buffett. Um, so that is a very, very <laughs> common self-attribution bias, right? Like, what really is good luck, and what it really is look, the market beta has sort of just propelled you forward. So anyone who was you know punting on stocks would have made phenomenal returns. Um, so they they sort of over attribute that to skill rather than they were in the stock market at the right time and taking out very large risks that they weren't aware of, right? If it was a bear market, they would probably lost all of their money. Um, and so that hubris is probably the biggest wealth destroyer for most investors because if you get lucky winning, betting big, uh, you are for sure going to bet even bigger the next time and you will likely to be taught a, a tough lesson by the universe. So that is, uh, that is probably the biggest mis mistake that a lot of investors make. Um, another mistake, uh, I would say is the, uh, sort of the, uh, it's called a lottery effect, meaning a lot of investors, they want to get rich fast, right? Uh, and so they, they, they go for extremely risky stocks. Uh, they're hoping that they could buy a, a, you know, a Tesla before it becomes a Tesla. They can buy Nvidia before the recent AI run up. They can buy Microsoft before you know Windows and Microsoft Office you know became the the everyday go to tools, right? So they're hoping to re replicate those experience when in fact you know anyone who was there at that time could not tell that Microsoft was going to be so successful, and to them that was a big risk and a big bet. Uh, and so people who who sort of you know see the stock market as a lottery ticket, well tend to take very concentrated, undiversified bets wanting to get rich fast. And the result of which is very few people get to invest in Tesla, you know, as their only exposure before Tesla goes up. Most people, what happens is um, they get concentrated into a main stock um, and, and that blows up on them or they use too much leverage. So even if they bought Tesla, just the random fluctuation would have caused margin call and caused them to get blown out of a ultimately profitable position. So this lottery uh, effect uh, bias is, is also uh, very, very detrimental to wealth accumulation, right? You want to get rich fast. And that's just not possible, right? If you think about, you know, if you think about how the world should work, if you think about how you want the world to work, if you think about how you want your children to experience work and experience wealth, you don't want them to experience where it's possible to make a big aggressive 
gamble and make lots of money, right? That, that's not what you, what you want to be the lesson from the universe, right? That's not what, what you want the lessons from financial markets to your children. Like, hey, you know, you don't have to work very hard. You take one big gamble and you're right and you, you can retire. Uh, so once you recognize that is not normal and it's probably bad for the soul, uh, hopefully um, your, your, your listeners and investors will understand, look, you know, investing, it's about compounding slowly over time and let the power of compounding uh, sort of get you to where you want to be. Right? The greatest wealth driver is still going to be because you're doing valuable work, um, building valuable connections, uh, you know, building valuable business um, and through labor, you know, and through, through, through just kind of, you know, the wonderfulness of, of your human character, uh, you earn a return on your human capital. And then, you know, you put that human capital with, you know, worthwhile entrepreneurs, worthwhile businesses and participate in their hard work and in the value they're creating. But again, all value creation is slow, compounded over time, right? It's, it's, it's just not, you know, this lucky windfall. And so once you believe, you know, what, the, the, the right sort of mechanism is for, for wealth creation. I understand that. Uh, hopefully you can, you know, talk yourself out of, you know, wanting to get rich fast uh, and believing that somehow you can have amazing stock trading skills so you don't have to work very hard and not create a lot of value and yet get very wealthy, right? So you can get that off of you know, your minds. Uh, I think you're going to be a much more successful and also a much more purposeful investors, right? When you, when you kind of go, hey, my money is with um, someone who's doing the kind of good work I'm doing, then you can sort of ignore the short-term price fluctuation and be at ease that, that that entrepreneur will be rewarded and you supporting him will be rewarded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the compounding aspect of what you're saying is just so important and I think so underappreciated by most people. I had a conversation recently with a um, really, really smart guy, understands math, understands investing. Um, but I mentioned to him, like, it doesn't matter how well we understand those things. Uh, sometimes even we underestimate the power of compounding. And we talked about um, the story who I'm sure, Jason, you've heard about this and maybe some of the listeners have as well. But if you look at Warren Buffett's wealth, I think it's something like 90% of his wealth came after his 65th birthday, which is just this testament yeah. to slow compounding yeah. over time. And then eventually you get to a point where these are some really big numbers that are multiplying, right? And you just get sort of this, yep. you know, things, things start to go yep. parabolic. Um, and then I, as you were talking, it, it reminded me of another funny story that I heard a while back. And I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but I think it was Fidelity or somebody that came out with a study and it showed like the best performing accounts that they had on the platform were deceased people because they yes. weren't going in and, and trading the accounts. And it's kind of like this old saying in the, in the investment management industry where your investment portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you handle it, the more it withers away. But um, yeah, just having this conviction in what you're investing in and, and having you know, a sense of optimism about the future, because like you said, if, if capital is in the hands of successful entrepreneurs, which if you're broadly investing in, in the U.S. stock market, it is, you know, having that conviction that over time you're going to experience a lot of compounding. 
But man, it's really hard to get people out of that lottery mindset, though. Everybody wants the quick fix. So when you found people who don't necessarily have the patience, um, like how do you take that conversation? How do you get them to kind of understand and maybe transition their thinking a little bit? Well, what I've come to realize is a lot of things you can't teach, right? People have to be ready to listen and learn. Uh, so what I realized, and then because I'm, I'm also a, a professor at UCLA, and so I kind of have this experience both in teaching MBA students, which is far easier, right? Because they actually have to take an exam. So they have a lot of incentives to, 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 to believe in what you say, at least to be able to regurgitate it back. But also, and I got a lot of experience uh, sort of speaking to, to my clients. And, you know, what I, what I realized is, um, you know, unless someone is open to, to learning, um, you can say sensible things and it just won't land. And, uh, and, you know, you don't need to push against a string, right? It's not going to lead to anything other than irritation on the other side. Um, so, you know, I would, I would kind of, you know, offer the data, like you say, the fidelity, um, uh, data, you know, uh, data set is a fantastic one to make the point. Uh, and I'll, you know, tell them many other anecdotes and, uh, hopefully, um, if they don't understand that or don't want to believe that immediately, it's in the back of their mind. So when they, you know, next learn the hard lesson from the stock market, from the investment god, um, they'll kind of go, ah, I remember someone mentioning something like that and I see what they mean. Um, and then the lesson would stick uh, from, from that point on. And so, um, you know, my experience is it's very hard to convince anyone um, simply by pointing out sort of textbook examples. Um, I think like you and I were talking before the show, right? Sometimes we have to learn things the hard way. Uh, it may be the only way that, that, that most human beings can learn. And that's all right. That's all right, right? Just make sure you, you learn the lesson early enough and the pain isn't so debilitating that you can recover from it. And then, you know, from, from that point, the lesson compounds and, and really kind of take you to, uh, to kind of the ultimate financial freedom. Yeah, it's so the, this conversation is almost coming full circle because my mind is going back to the beginning when we were talking about um, appreciating how lucky you are, having a sense of gratitude and really focusing on living in the present and being happy with the present. And if you've got that trifecta working for you, uh, you know, gratefulness for your luck, just being gratitude in general and, and being happy, you're probably not going to want to win that lottery ticket. You know, it would be nice, but you can sort of shift out of that mindset of trying for, to, to get the fast buck and, and have a little bit more patience for slow compounding to do its thing. So it's interesting to me how this whole conversation kind of came full circle. I feel like, you know, what you outlined in the beginning, as far as a good mindset for an entrepreneur is just a good wealth building mindset in general. So I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think hopefully everyone you know, sort of understand that, uh, you know, fast money, even if it does come, right? Look at how much it's short circuited out for you, right? I mean, there's something about sort of working really hard and learn something as you fail and get up and try again and, and really get to know yourself, uh, get to learn humility. Um, and then ultimately you succeed and, and, and kind of the wealth builds and comes, right? Like 
that journey in of itself is the biggest price, right? If someone sort of eliminate the journey and just drop the money on you, I'm not sure that's that's what if you sort of think about it more deeply, that's what any of us actually would want. Well, Jason, thank you so much for for coming on today. Um, where can people find more information about you if they want to look you up? We will have your name in the, the show notes, Jason Sue, and I would recommend following you on LinkedIn. I certainly get a lot out of your your posts there. But where else can people look if they want to learn a little bit more? Yeah, so uh, I, I work at uh, Radiant uh, Global Advisor. So our, our website is R-A-Y-L-I-A-N-T.com, Radiant.com. Uh, you know, Google me under Jason Sue. I, I think there's a really handsome and famous Jason Sue. That's not me. Uh, this version looks like this. Uh, and, uh, and you know, um, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Subscribe to my newsletter, The Bridge, where I kind of talk about mostly emerging markets uh, and what's happening out there. Uh, but, you know, anytime you drop me a line, I will promise to, to, to write you back. All right. Great. Well, Jason, thanks again for coming on. It's been a pleasure and um, look forward to our next chat. All right, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. And if you have a moment, check out my website at reflectivewealth.com. Everything you need to know about my business is there. Because if there's one thing I've learned in my career, transparency and accountability are critical to a healthy financial services industry. Thanks and see you next time.